Hello, happy Friday to you. It's Chappie, the British butler, and it's Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese, your weekly dose of a little nostalgia, a little whimsy, a little nonsense, a little tomfoolery, and a lot of buffoonery. It's lovely to be here. Well, not in the sense of being warm and spring-like. We've had a nice little spring snowstorm overnight here in Colorado, and... um, I mean, that, that, that's sort of affecting the mood. I mean, when you have to pack the long johns away, or you think you're packing the long johns away until next September, October, I mean, because there's snow in September sometimes here, uh, then um, it, it is quite, uh, it's quite a desperation, and, uh, and it really gets you a little bit down, trying to get the long johns out again, you know? But they're so restrictive. I mean, they really are. I mean, it's like it's like being uh, it's like being in one of those gimp suits, I guess, like zipped up to the nines. Uh, but it's sort of white. I, I don't have those sort of slightly discolored, uh, uh, yellowy stained, uh, you know, long johns. And I'm just thinking. I mean, not that I've ever worn a gimp suit, but I just imagine that it would be quite tight and restrictive. And the long johns are a little bit like that other than having the ball or the apple in your mouth like some sort of hog being tied or something along those lines. So here we are again, as happy as can be, all good friends and jolly good company. And so it's a big day today. So what do you mean, Chappie? You're giving up the podcast and giving us freedom, audio freedom again? No, 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 no. I'm actually being vaccinated today. First vaccination. And um, so I'm recording this segment of the podcast uh, just before I get vaccinated. And I'm going to do one a little bit later and give you a sort of sense of how I'm feeling. I don't know how things, how quickly these things react. So, I mean, my 90-year-old grandmother's had two vaccinations. She's basically been fine. Uh, my dad's getting his second one today in the UK. Um, and my mother, she's uh, had one and, and didn't feel that great after it. So... Who knows? I mean, it's like a toss of the coin, really, um, how you're going to feel afterwards. So I'm sort of getting, uh, you know, sort of preloading my work, so to speak, getting some of the work out of the way, just in, the, just in case I feel goddamn awful. I mean, um, I can sort of prop myself up on a, maybe a scotch drip or something later on and with a little bit of uh, honey and lemon to massage the throat to get me through the final few minutes of the podcast. But... I thought I'd get going early and, uh, and, and get the lion's share of this done, and then you can uh, hear me afterwards. I mean, it's, cer- it's certainly a very good thing to have done. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Everybody should go and get vaccinated. But a question. I mean, back in the day, I, I don't know if this was just in comedy movies, like the carry-on movies or, or um, on the buses, or these sort of typically British, almost seaside postcard innuendo laden very cheeky sort of comedy uh, shows and programs everybody always used to be vaccinated in the bottom now what's happened to that i mean were nurses made of a sort of harder breed and a little bit more bristling you know hair in the chest and hands etc and they could handle seeing an assortment of bottoms i mean that's what it is it's an assortment of bottoms it really is the good the bad and the ugly I mean, I almost feel like the whistling start of the, uh, of the Western movie there. The anticipation of how ugly the bottom's going to be before you vaccinate it or before you prick it. 
I mean, has have nurses back in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s and 80s, have they turned turned away a bottom for being too ugly? I wonder. But I think my bottom's a little a little bit more fleshy. I mean, I've got the dad bottom, not flat, than the arm. I mean, I'm, I, I mean, my arms are sort of knots on cotton, basically. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I paint such an attractive image, and my daughter uh, described me as Danny DeVito a few weeks ago. So it's an incredibly attractive image. Um, but yeah, but why don't we get vaccinated in the bottom anymore? Anyway, something to explore on the course of this uh, roller coaster of podcast. And uh, yeah, there's no punting along the cam. Uh, uh, all you know, all the Chirwell today, all the St. Charles River. If you're in Harvard, I mean, it's snowy here. It's it's pretty bad, and uh, and you, you know, you would need a, you would need some de-icer to get the paddle going through the water. Certainly today. So, I'm going to try either today or tomorrow my first pickled onion monster munch in 30 years. I'm going to enjoy the taste sensation. And I'm trying to give, going to give you an audio description of my first pickled onion monster munch in, in 30 years. I mean, it's almost like if you imagine drinking from the Holy Grail and getting eternal youth, I imagine the first pickled onion monster munch in 30 years could give me eternal youth. It could have the reverse, you know, almost like um, getting Botox. A pickled onion monster munch could smooth out all sorts of uh, wrinkles, carbuncles, you know, double chins, crow's eyes, crow's nest, whatever they are, whatever ailments you get when you get a little bit older. So I think white's the way to go in the snow. So why not introduce and start wearing the seersucker trousers in the snow? I think white's the only way to go in the snow, without a doubt. Um, I I found my perfect dog. And I, ha- and I have her already. They always say dogs look like your owners. So I think the corgi is perfect for me. And I'll be describing that a little bit later. Also, problem with me never doing my flies up. Uh, James Bond being a mansplainer. We never talked about the birds that I saw. One of them's an old friend of the family, so to speak. Uh, or both are, actually. Uh, but what does it mean? I, I mean, I, I see all sorts of creatures. I mean, the, the spiritual side... Of, uh, of Colorado is speaking to me constantly. There's no doubt about that. We never talked about the nose bag attachment for bedroom shenanigans. Also, the sheet company that's contacted me. Uh, we never uh, looked about that as well. I never described the uh, interesting uh, circular-shaped feather ornament that was attached to the wall in Breckenridge. Uh, we never, we never looked at that either. So we have a fun pack show. We do have some uh, trumple trombone. Uh, either today or tomorrow, we're going to have another historical Tinder. Uh, I think we're going to be looking at Charlie Chaplin. He was a naughty little chap. I mean, he didn't speak very much, but uh, it's always the quiet ones, they say. And um, also uh, also some enigmatic English eccentric habits. That's rather lovely as well. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen, for another podcast. Keep calm and cauliflower cheese. Relax, put your bed socks on, and go in, delve in and enjoy. So, when disaster strikes, the monkeys of Cayo Santiago get together for a bit of blitz spirit. Before the disaster, the monkeys of Cayo Santiago 
had spent most of their time bickering and indeed fighting. So when a hurricane devastated their Caribbean island home, researchers assumed that the uh, monkeys would retreat into tight-knit cliques. The uh, jungle had been stripped of most of its vegetation and the primates were expected to battle over scarce resources. Instead, to the scientists' surprise, the monkeys demonstrated something akin to a blitz spirit. They started making friends with strangers. A study had compared two groups of primates before and after the hurricane, uh, which struck in 2017, and found an increase in friendly social connections after the disaster. The research team found that uh, the uh, monkeys were brought back to the Caribbean from India in 1930s and worked on building new relationships rather than strengthening the existing ones. They were more likely to share resources that suddenly become limited in their tropical habitat, such as shade. They extended their social networks to include more partners. The researchers analyzed the monkeys' social networks by uh, watching how often the... Uh, monkeys sat close together and their grooming behavior the monkeys grew close to friends of friends primates that had once been on the periphery of the community were allowed in the friendliness was unexpected in part because the monkeys were not usually very nice to each other it's notoriously uh, nespotic and despotic society they form close relationships in which their lives depend but i think these emerge in the fact that they're very competitive society and they face these sort of strict dominance hierarchies it's almost like a, a caste system for females. They're born into a certain status that their mother had and they retain that status for life. Uh, if you have high status, you live longer, you have more babies and you have greater access to food. We expect that the monkeys would use their closest allies to cope with the ecological devastation of the hurricane and so would invest in their existing relationships. So we're surprised that after the hurricane, they expanded their social networks and number of individuals they tolerated. These were not always uh, active uh, interactions. Tolerance might mean simply sharing a shady place to sit. Our closest friends can give us many things, but sometimes we need a social network. We haven't been able to quantify it just yet, but those patterns that the research assistant said they first noticed a few months ago after the hurricane, they're still there. I think uh, when we go and look at it again, this is what we're going to find, that closer interaction, even with the stranger monkeys, I mean, that's something we have to, you know, maybe start monkeying around after uh, after the pandemic and uh, getting out there and, uh, well, I don't think picking fleas out of each other's hairs or sharing bananas may be the way to go forward, but, uh, you know, be a little more friendly to the strange monkeys. So, as I said, this particular buddy, dear chappy the butler, um, it is closely connected to the spiritual world. I mean, I've seen foxes. I've seen sort of all sorts of birds. I've had birds of prey follow me around. I've had owls following me around, which I thought might be my impending doom, but indeed wasn't. I'm still here. I mean, certainly in body uh, and hopefully in spirit and mind. Um, but so the other the other day, the other week, probably about a week ago actually, I um, I saw a couple of my old uh, a couple of my old friends basically, and. Uh, and it was odd, because as you know, maybe the mascot of the show, uh, one of the mascots, is indeed the goose. You know, I feel a bit sorry for them, really. They were hunted down and fed to the homeless last year here in Denver. And, uh, you know, so I have a little bit of an affinity uh, to, uh, to the goose. Um, but, the, uh, but the interesting thing was, um, as I said, I, about a week ago, I saw a goose and it was on its own so I, mean, I felt sorry maybe it was wounded or hurt or something along those lines but i thought well does this reflect uh 
into the bigger scope of things for your dear butler host. So, seeing a solitary goose, and then I um, and then I, I saw another bird as well, which we'll go into in a second. So, like chickens and ducks, geese are among the world's most commonly domesticated birds, kept for eggs, meat, feathers. A domesticated goose can lay up to 50 eggs a year, and therefore the goose is often associated with fertility and uh, fecundity. In a fairy tale about a goose who laid golden eggs, its greedy owner grew impatient with the daily gold and killed the goose to access what he expected to be a treasure trove. Instead, all he got was a dead goose. The story's moral is that patience is indeed its own reward. And the Norse goddess Freya was said to have been goose-footed and scared geese guarded the temple of Juno in ancient Rome. The white goose is also associated with Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. The tales of Mother Goose, the mythical creator of a collection of nursery rhymes, are actually a translation of the stories by the fictional storyteller Charles Perrault, 17th century work, Conte de Mar Mayoy, Tales of the Mother of the Goose. The uh, name Mother Goose may have been inspired by the French Queen Bertha called Goosefoot, mother of Charlemagne and a patron of children. The goose was also a sacred bird of Berkshire, a Germanic earth goddess. But the meaning and divine meaning and omens of the goose. If you see a goose, you should examine several areas of your life. Abundance of some kind may be coming your way. And remember, abundance doesn't always always mean wealth. It could be, uh, you know, it could be a pile of dog shit, you know. Um, You might also be more watchful for an attack of some kind, small and significant, and think about what's precious to you in order to protect it. Finally, take a look at your current possessions, obsessions, hobbies, Are you on a wild goose chase about something? Hmm, maybe, I don't know. Have you ever thought about your path and plan your attack carefully? What's your focus? Have you collected as much information and data as possible to make a balanced and informed decision? Do you have a clearly defined goal? Canada geese share leadership roles in their migratory flights, trading off the point position. Take a moment to look at how you work within a team. Can you step up and assume a leadership? position when necessary and then again when somebody else's strengths would be better serve the group's needs the migratory aspects of geese could indicate upcoming travel well maybe i mean get vaccinated a couple of times i'm hoping to to do a little bit more traveling but i mean in this case the goose as i said was solitary on its own so i mean i don't know if it means for me to take stock think assess Take some solitary moments to uh, ponder. Have a sip of a cup of tea, which uh, luckily I have right here now. Oh, it's a lovely, lovely cup of Charlie. So that was one. So that I, I saw two birds within the space of two minutes. And the second bird was a little bit more sinister. It was our dear, slightly naughty, slightly dark uncle, the magpie. And I saw the magpie, and the magpie had a bone in its mouth. So I've got a carnivorous, maybe even cannibalistic magpie, and a solitary goose on my walking trail. I mean, what does that mean indeed? You know, it certainly gives me something to gnaw about, something to think about, but but very odd that I have a... Hannibal Lecter magpie also following me and some poor, desperate, lonely goose. 
I think we need to call in the shrinks. I mean, whilst we're still on our feathered thrands, then I, I think we have to have a look at something that I saw when I was in Breckenridge about a week ago. So attached to the wall was some th- feathered circular ornament and it was it was a collection of quite large um i mean they looked like blackbird feathers but they might have been bigger than that and it was a slightly odd i mean it looked like some maybe ancient uh mating ritual for a easter islander maybe or something along those lines i mean you imagine spinning the feathers and wherever the longest feather landed was you know your concubine or something along those lines um but it was a very dusty collection of feathers and and sort of looked a little bit sticky also yeah yeah i mean you need to i mean i need a like a a mouthwash of listerine here and a and a, and a sort of uh, maybe a bleach bath after thinking about this feathered ornament again I mean, it looked like some sort of, uh, I, I'm not saying it's like the uh, soggy biscuit competition or anything along those lines. I don't want to turn anybody's stomach if they're having brunch on a Friday here. But it almost looked like some maybe sort of carnal bullseye competition, let me put it that way. And the feathers weren't in the best uh, best way. The little bit uh, sticky and uh, yeah, I mean, you would probably need quite a bit of OxyClean and I wouldn't go near it with a yard brush. I might get an elephant brush out, the one you use to wash out an elephant and use that to scrub these feathers down. That's as close as I'd ever get to that feathered ornament, without a doubt. But you know what? I think it has, uh, it, I mean, it has some history behind it, without a doubt. And um, I, I honestly thought it was... Uh, talk about Bond and uh, Bond's mansplaining or whatever later but it looked like the occult hat in Live and Let Die where there's a bloodied feather but this feather was not covered in that sort of body juice blood I feel it was something slightly not a lovely little enigmatic English eccentric habit so anyway, enigmatic English eccentric habits. So I think we've explored this before, probably last year, near the near the start. You know when the when the tablets of keep calm and cauliflower cheese were carved out originally, back in uh, end of May, April, May last year. We talked about cheese rolling. So let's talk about it in a little bit more detail. Cheese rolling in Gloucestershire. Cheese rolling on Cooper's Hill in Gloucestershire may not sound dangerous. But this annual event, which local authorities keep trying to ban, is no walk in the park. Once a year, as they've done for hundreds of years, daredevil young men and women hurl themselves down a hill so steep that it's impossible to remain standing, in pursuit of a seven or eight pound wheel of locally made double Gloucester cheese. There is simply no way to participate and can come down to Cooper's Hill on their feet. Spectators who get too close to the edge have been known to tumble over and join the race involuntary. And the prize, a wheel of cheese, of course. Food-related weird and wacky events are not limited to cheese. Check out how the women of Buckinghamshire town of Olney mark the start of Lent 
with a 550-year-old pancake flipping race. That's for another day. Okay, so over the course of Easter and the recent weeks, I've watched a lot of James Bond movies. I mean, a whole handful. I mean, that's where I was thinking about getting a third nipple. I'm still looking for a third nipple, by the way. So uh, if you've seen any around, then uh, then uh, answers on a postcard to Chappie Towers and uh, put hashtag nipple, if you don't mind. Um, but, but thinking about Bond and especially probably the 60s, 70s and 80s Bonds, even into the 90s, to be honest, with Brosnan in the first movie where he's... Uh, driving around in the Aston Martin DB5 with uh, some uh, lady who's psychologically analysing him. There's a little bit of mansplaining going on whilst driving the Aston Martin at probably 120 miles an hour. But I mean, I love Roger Moore. I mean, I really do. I I think he's the best Bond. I mean, and I know that a lot of you, I may lose a lot of listeners because of, of saying that, but I think he's fantastic. If I was to play Bond, I would do it in that way, you know. But I think, you know, with the with the little sparrow arms that I have and the, uh, you know, a little bit of meat on the bottom, I think I'd have to do that. I mean, I haven't got the sheer muscle of Connery. I mean, the barrel chest helps me uh, lift many larger circles and wheels of cheese as we than the former feature. I mean, I think I would be able to bench press maybe 200 pounds worth of cheese pretty easily you know without getting exhausted cheese exhaustion i mean i can eat the cheese i can lift the cheese i can squeeze the cheese Ah. but i mean bond especially i mean if you look at a couple of the classics that i watched during my uh my birthday celebrations um firstly moonraker which is an underrated classic i have to say I mean, you have to look at it. It was two years before the whole shuttle um, shuttle setup and, 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 and space shuttle program started. I mean, it was two years before. So it was before its time, you know. And seeing Bond in a safari suit in the Amazon jungle, uh, being chased around by uh, beautiful women in, in probably outfits that shouldn't astronauts shouldn't be wearing. Because, you know, I mean, there isn't any wind in space, I suppose, so there wouldn't be any Marilyn Monroe situations going on, without a doubt. But, I mean, Bond meets up with Holly Goodhead. I mean, you can't even make this up. Holly Goodhead, who's a, who's a trained astronaut for FASA, um, the, the female equivalent of uh, NASA, or the f- female equivalent only of NASA. And he tries to mansplain astronaut techniques and training and being in space and shooting a laser i mean these aren't lasers with sharks attached to it friggin sharks as dr evil would say but i mean you sort of i mean bond seems to be like a jack of all trades master of none i mean he learned oriental languages at cambridge um but he doesn't seem to be brilliant at everything i mean it's sort of feel you know it feels like i'm a uh like a mini-me renaissance man. And I think Bond is a little bit the same. I mean, what he doesn't know, he sort of guesses or makes up with uh, bullish confidence. And and Holly Goodhead wasn't having any of this. And he nearly came to his 
Knuppence in the uh, in the whole gravity, uh, the, the, you know, the gravity practice machine or whatever it is, where he's spinning around at 500 miles an hour, and Chang tries to kill him. But you know, and she turns out to be an FBI agent. But I mean, Bond, you know, you don't go mansplaining to a fully trained astronaut who has experience in these in the, in these areas. You know, it's it's like uh, it's like it's like an amateur chef trying to teach a chef how to do a souffle. I mean, Goodhead is the is the uh, is the Michelin star chef when it comes to space and astronaut uh, type activity. I mean, and Bond is 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 as flat as a pancake when it comes to the whole uh, souffle situation. I mean, that's that's what we have going on here. You have. Uh, you know, you have mansplaining when mansplaining was allowed and not called out. And she did call him out a little bit. So maybe Holly Goodhead was the first person to call out mansplaining in 1979. So here we go again with some more Trump or trombone. So wildest to Titanic conspiracy theories on tragedy's anniversary for murder to mummy curse. So the sinking of the Titanic uh, happened earlier in the week. It would have been 109 years ago. And they go down to inspire films of deep sea diving expeditions, surprising number of conspiracy theories. The so-called Ship of Dreams struck an iceberg on the 14th of April 1912 and sank beneath the waves. 1,500 people were killed. At least that's the official version. But over the years, there's been alternative theories to explain the maritime disaster and they've cropped up. Um, J.P. Morgan, who was owner of the Titanic uh, through the International Mercantile Marine Company, which acquired the White Star Line, he intended to have a voyage on the Titanic's doom maiden voyage, but changed his mind sometime before it set and did not board. This sparked a theory that Morgan had planned for the ship to sink in an attempt to kill off Jacob Astor, one of his big rivals, and Benjamin Guggenheim. I mean, it's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. And also, they talked about a ship switch. Uh, J.P. Morgan apparently uh, may, may have changed the ships. The Titanic's sister ship, the Olympic, that sank, disguised to look like the Titanic as part of an insurance scam. You know, that was something along the lines. Gardner proposes, uh, you know, in his book, that the interest in showing they were still making money, White Star quickly patched up the Olympic and disguised it as the Titanic. I mean, some people even say it wasn't, uh, wasn't an iceberg at all that uh, involved, uh, that involved this in the sinking. The vessel was lurking near the ship with its own lights out, waiting to raise the emergency signal as part of the plan. This would explain why the lookout crew didn't spot the object until it was too late. Rather than an enormous white iceberg, they failed to spot a small darkened ship ahead. And then you had the curse of the mummy. One of the passengers killed in the Titanic, William Steed, was the UK editor who spent the last several years insisting a cursed mummy was behind several recent disasters in London. And the Egyptian theory also talked about the uh, Titanic as well. But I mean, here's another one. Allegedly, was Rose Jack's mummy? Wait, I mean, this is getting very odd, very confusing. Uh, I mean, did the Titanic really sink? And ISS cameras capture a huge 400-foot triangular UFO soaring beneath the SpaceX uh, aircraft. The mysterious object was spotted hurtling past SpaceX's Dragon capsule not far from the International Space Station. UFO fan Mr. MBB333 estimated it could be 400-foot wide and triangular. Now my mind is racing. 
could it really be a giant chocolate Toblerone, the triangle of delight? And incredible photos show worshippers dancing along the streets holding human skulls above their heads as part of the ritual. The unusual ritual of Hindu festival in Badmanaman, uh, India, is designed to appease Hindu deities or gods and bring fortune to people. Known as the Gajan Festival, it's a week-long Hindu celebration in the Indian state of West Bengal, where residents dress in brightly coloured clothes and show off the skulls to gathering crowds. I mean, I think people have been in lockdown for too long. You could say that the revellers are wide-eyed and headless. Okay, there'll be more trumple trombone tomorrow in the podcast. So this is the point. It's like a before and after. Again, we talk about the souffle, you know. So I'm basically the souffle that's about to go in the vaccination oven. And uh, we'll see if I rise or fall a little bit later. So uh, join me a little bit later. And I'll be uh, enjoying, I think, my first pickled onion crisp. Monster Munch for 30 years after I've been vaccinated. It might just be the elixir and the lift that I need. Okay, so ladies and mantelpieces, I know it seems like a couple of seconds. A couple of seconds since uh, the last chunk of this episode, but uh, now I've had the Moderna vaccination, the first one. The first one. So... I'm not going to uh, post my card online with a big cheesy smile or anything like that. I'm not going to do that. It's so derogatory. It's so yesterday. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to have my first pickled onion monster munch in 30 years. Oh my god. Mmm. The piquancy, the crunchiness, the corny delight, the breath is absolutely phenomenal. So, I'm not going to eat a whole packet of Monster Munchers on a live podcast, or should I? I mean, you can only you can only eat this if your lover, girlfriend, boyfriend, animal, vegetable, mineral, is eating them as well, or you're not going to see them for a few days. But there's some serious tongue scrubbing action that needs to be done as well. Honestly, you need to scrub the tongue after these babies. But it's uh. But celebrating, isn't science amazing? I mean, not in the creation of pickled onions, I mean the vaccine. Pickled onion monster munches, though, are a wonderful delight. And I think a little sweet treat, maybe an Eccles cake. I never had an Eccles cake until the other day. Like jam in the middle of a buttery sort of scony type thing. Delicious. I mean, it's very lucky that this is an audio podcast, not sort of scratch and sniff or anything like that. But I think my breath now after the pickled onion monster munch, is probably radioactive. I mean, they may need to build some sort of sarcophagus around me like they did in Chernobyl um, to protect the public from my pickled onion breath. I know, it's it's so attractive, isn't it? But I promise you, there will be an amazing amount of tongue scraping going on. 
uh, you know, once uh, once a podcast is finished. And uh, I could be delirious, though, because of the vaccine. So, I, I mean, at the moment, I, I feel, you know, a little bit numb in the arm, but nothing, really. Um, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Uh, but as I said, my 90-year-old grandmother can do it, then I'm not too worried about it, without a doubt. All right, so the big question, really, you know, after getting the vaccination here, is, you know, why why aren't we vaccinated into our bottoms anymore, our posteriors, our arse? I mean, we, we, everybody used to back in the day. Or was it just a fallacy on some comedy uh, show um, because they wanted to see somebody get a small prick or a big prick in the bottom who knows i mean <clears throat> i mean i'm just hazarding i guess here. but you'd think it'd be less painful if you especially if you had a padded posterior you know you have a little bit of flab or fat on the bottom but i mean i've done a bit of research here and your bottom is the largest muscle in your body if you need a large injection into muscle tissue it goes there out of necessity because it's large it hurts like hell so like a flu jab or COVID vaccine, it's pretty tiny. So a smaller muscle in your arm will do. It's more accessible. You don't have to remove any undergarments. I mean, what if you like me? You know, you have the Austin Powers uh, suit that comes off all in one. I mean, that's, I always have that ready to go. The butler outfit is removable in just one, one swipe or flourish. I mean, it's ideal for an injection, I would say. Um, and you know, there's a bit more taboo. I think the I think the nurses and the healthcare workers back in the day were used to seeing very ugly bottoms. You know, maybe a you know mountain of hair, almost like a uh, a Texas Longhorn, uh, you know, or an Aberdeen Angus cow on your bottom. They were used to seeing it. They were harder, more hardy, and they weren't you know they weren't worried or a little bit uh, skittish. Or nervous about seeing a Barbarossa in the arse or anything along those lines. But, um, you know, I, I, I think it would kill... I mean, maybe it's because the needles have to be thicker to go through a bigger bottom. Like, if you're doing a Kim Kardashian, if you're vaccinating Kim Kardashian, I mean, did, you know, do you need a, a bigger needle? I mean, or stronger? Does it need to be made of tungsten or something? Sometimes fell out about my bottom. I need a tungsten needle to get through, but um, but they don't. They just don't do it anymore. And I think it's because we're a little bit more squeamish, a little bit more woke. We're not ready for bottom vaccinations anymore. They've, they've gone. It's a bygone age. It's like the long, long lost world of the pharaohs, or the square wheel, or the or the world being flat. But. There's more fat in the bottom. Why don't we? Why don't we consider it again, at least? I mean, who knows? But there we go. Vaccine number one done. Maybe I'm slightly delirious, but I'm eating pickled onion monster munches for brunch, and I'm talking about being injected in the bottom. Yeah, maybe I need to lie down. Okay, so French chefs no longer need a tall hat to prove their top dog. There was a time when no self-respecting French chef would be seen without a tuke. White hat, big white hat. It's a symbol of prestige, distinguishing head cooks from assistants. Very hierarchical. 
The young generation of chefs, however, is turning up for work in jeans, t-shirts, flat caps to the dismay of traditionalists such as Christophe Magan, who runs Le Président restaurant in Lyon. The changes provoked a debate that disclosed divisions in the world of gastronomy. Echoing those visible in society struggling to come to terms with globalization. Marquand, uh, chairman of Le Touc Blanche in, uh, in Lyon, an association of chefs, said it's very important for leading cooks to wear traditional hats, which date back to the 19th century. It's always been the thing that everybody associated with chefs. He added, generations of French children dream uh, about going into gastronomy, seeing the likes of uh, Paul Gacuse, the late cook from Lyon, who was never without his tall hat, the Tuki. Whenever we did a photo of Paul, always insisted that everybody had a white vest, white apron, white Tuki, uh, black trousers, black shoes, black socks. But today we have chefs in t-shirts, tattoos, jeans, caps, and I think it's a shame. I know that everybody wants uh, to be different these days, but they should think of the image they're giving to the French cuisine. Clothes bring respect, and I worry that chefs carry on dressing like this in the medium term, they'll lose people's respect. Paul Perret is the one of the French chefs to dispense a traditional dress code. Perret, a judge on Top Chef, an American reality TV series, has a restaurant in Shanghai with three Michelin stars. He is renowned for his chairman Mao cap. Um, and then uh, Julien Sabag, whose Creatures restaurant in Paris is praised for its vegetarian dishes, prefers a Chez Guevara style beret. Uh, Killian Stenkel, a lecturer in gastronomie at the Tours University, said that the pandemic world would uh, accelerate the evolution of chefs turning to click and collect and online promotions. There'll be less room for the old-fashioned tall white hats, but I don't think they'll die out. There'll still be chefs that will wear them. It takes me on to one of my favourite uh, one of my favorite Instagrammers out there. I mean, th- this chap is a, he's an absolutely fascinating sort of fellow. Um, yeah, Bernard Rotzel is an author of some repute. Uh, he's a fashionista, uh, Dion, uh, Dion of, um, of men's fashion. I mean, you never see him without a tweed, a tweed jacket, uh, French cufflinks. I mean, I, I mean, he's, Dressed impeccably. Dressed to impress. I mean, that was one of the early adages of the show here. But he was talking about, I mean, he has like 15 dark blue neckties. I mean, absolutely fabulous. I mean, slightly different navy blue, but he has them. And then he talks about the striped ties today. And I love a striped tie. Their origin of coloured hat bands worn on straw boaters by college students in England. Later, the striped ties were adapted as a pattern for network in the armed forces, colleges, schools, clubs and various associations. Here you see a couple of ties from my collection he's talking about. He's bought them in 30 years. It's Bernard Rotzel. Um, so, regimental club, college stripes are available. I love the uh, MCC, Marylebone Cricket Club uh, like the eggs and bacon tie, the uh, yellow and red is absolutely fantastic. But this is a very interesting fellow. I highly recommend you follow him on Instagram. Um, and he's got an absolutely superb German accent. And he's talking about a lot of English fashion and uh, and uh, Savile Row type of suits, bespoke suits. Um, but very, very, very interesting fellow. And it's, again, it's sort of a bygone age, wearing a three-piece suit. I mean, not many people do that. I wore it for work for many, many years. 
Like not many people do that now. The fashion is going out the window. I mean, I'm sitting in my studio here <clears throat> with... I have my grandfather's Grenadier Guard tie. It's navy blue and maroon. And he never used to undo it. I mean, here it is. Brushing against the microphone. And... I mean, it has quite wonderful memories. He had many of these, but I've got one here. It's like lucky right below where I broadcast the uh, podcast here. Tight knot, as he would have left it. Um, and many, many, many good memories. And always wore a tie, even at Christmas. You know, always, even at Christmas. So, there we go. We're almost at the end of another lovely podcast here. Keep calm and cauliflower cheese. And, uh, you know, a lot of things we haven't covered today. I don't think we covered the nose bag that uh, I think should be brought into the boudoir, like the uh, the horse nose bag. Uh, probably not going to go into the reasons why, but maybe you can use your imagination. We'll m- maybe talk about that tomorrow. Uh, my father's had his hair cut. Um, and, of course, um, at, uh, at Chappie Towers there in uh, Norfolk in the UK. Uh, always much amusement going on. Uh, many, many sort of shenanigans. Uh, but um, he really did look like he had a grey lion's mane. And it's all been shorn off now uh, with the wonders of Les the Barber. And he looks like a new man. He looks 20 years younger. I mean, everybody always says he looks slightly younger than me. Um, but we'll maybe uh, discussing that again tomorrow as well. So thank you very much for listening to the podcast today. Um, and uh, as I said, I... I I may need to uh, get probably two tons of toothpaste and a very stiff, large scrubbing brush to scrub my tongue after the uh, pickled onion celebration uh, monster munches after the vaccination. Uh, But at Keep Cheese on Twitter, Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese, I took a picture of us at the Eccles Cake and the monster munches before they were devoured, so you can go and look at that. And uh, all sorts of snippets from the show and uh, lots of nonsense, lots of dog pictures, lots of snowy scenes. Uh, probably maybe the last snow of the season who knows um but uh, and also um I, i'm across many different platforms from apple music uh to pandora iHeartRadio, uh in the audio version and then there's a musical edition on spotify if you like a little bit of music scattered into your podcast and you want to hear a, a you know very well selected and well chosen butler playlist then you can go to spotify and listen to that uh, but uh, there we go. That's been Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese 78. Uh, Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese 79 tomorrow. Uh, you know, God willing, if I feel a little bit under the weather, I'm still going to try to do it and be as honest I can with you, ladies and mantelpieces, how I'm feeling. But uh, it's certainly worth going to go and get the jab, go and get the vaccine. And we finish with a nice little poem that I discovered in the week, Alexander McCall Smith. Uh, wrote a poem called Vaccine, and apologies for any mispronunciations of uh, Italian words through the poem here. And it's called Vaccine. Not belonging to any one and separate group, nor in a particular place, this delicate creation of biochemistry is a symphony devised by many, as many by the epidemiologist in places we've never heard of, by the immunologist in well-set seats of learning, by the virologist in some remote settings and settlements where poverty and its cousin disease flourish with grim impunity. With all these ologists, anonymous for the most part, exhausted now after a long year of effort, it belongs to them 
if not a single note we hear, but the product of an extended scientific orchestra playing together, in which many belong, who all play selflessly from science's score, under which a postscript reads, remember what we can do when we act together as friends, joined in community, humanity. Del Capo El Calda, from the beginning to the additional, bars at the end, at the very end. Sometimes we may not hear the music they make. It's being performed in the background, marked piano rather than forte, until suddenly it soars and announces itself, and we hear it more clearly. Played con brio del tutte, the sound of science, the sound of healing endeavor, with a glorious and moving chorus. We want you to have this. To those in need, it will be free. It will be free, a perfect note of which to end a sympathy that began with lacrimosa and, we hope, ends in maestroso. Cheerio, one and all. Have a lovely day. I'll be back tomorrow. God willing.